on today's Truth Factor discussion, we're going to be considering Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. There's some interesting lessons to be learned from this chapter, especially in regards to the working of the, um, the church there in Jerusalem in the first century. And Paul Adams is going to be leading our discussion today as we take a look at that. So, Paul, if you would uh, take a moment and let everybody know how they can participate in today's discussion. Be happy to do that, John. I'm so glad that there are viewers who have joined us today and that uh, we can uh, enjoy this study together as we look at the Word of God. Uh, you might be watching on YouTube and uh, as a YouTube live video, and if you're doing that, uh, it's youtube.com slash truthfactorlive. Facebook uh, is the same on Facebook slash truthfactorlive or Twitter slash truthfactorlive. You can engage in us in any of those ways. You might also like to send us a, a note. You can send it in an email to questions at truthfactor.com. That's questions, plural, at truthfactor.com. Or any of our first names uh, and at truthfactor.com if you want to email us uh, in individually. And so uh, looking forward to the study today uh, and hope that you will participate in our study. All right, Paul, why don't you just go right ahead since you're leading today's study? Be happy to do that. Uh, today's chapter is kind of a, a shorter chapter, and we've observed that it's not the greatest chapter division, uh, but that we're going to go ahead and observe uh, the chapter division at the end of chapter 6. It's only 15 verses, and we're going to see a potential blow-up among the disciples that is averted, and we're also going to see a very powerful teacher comes on the scene and see what his preaching uh, accomplishes and what it does. And then that will continue into the next lesson, as some of you have already observed. And so as we uh, look at this, uh, I had some notes uh, written down here uh, that we begin this chapter, and we see that the church is doing quite well, and, and the disciples are doing quite well, and Satan's going to look for an opportunity to damage the church, to keep that growth, uh, to stifle their uh, work uh, that's being done. And I think we see two examples of that. Uh, we see uh, a, a couple of things in this chapter. The complaint that we'll begin with, uh, that some felt neglected, and also we're going to see uh, in the powerful preaching of Stephen, efforts to stop him. And I have a, a given a date to this uh, in the studies that I've done of being not far into the beginning of the church, somewhere around 34, 35 A.D., uh, is likely, uh, I'm not being dogmatic about that, an approximation uh, of the time frame that we're looking at. And so I have Brian set up to read Acts 6, 1 through 6. If you'd like to open up your Bibles there, if you're watching online, open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Brian's going to read verses 1 through 6, and then we'll proceed into a discussion of that passage. Thank you very much, Paul. I'll be reading this morning from the New King James Version, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Now, in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business." But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, 
Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Thank you, Brian, for reading that. And we have, a first of all, to introduce a, a question for the chat room. And if you're watching through the different uh, means, we'd like to have your input on this question as well as others. Uh, but as you look at that, uh, what kind of diversity do we see among the disciples? And are there any lessons that we can learn from that? Uh, what is the diversity that we see among the disciples, and what lessons can be learned uh, from that? Uh, we'll start today with Tom. Uh, Tom, as we look here, and we have a couple of things that are stated about the church in this chapter, about the disciples and how things are going. Uh, what are you seeing as far as uh, the general condition? If they were to give a state of the church uh, statement, uh, what would you see about the church there in Acts chapter 6? Well, I would, I would say that they're growing because it makes the point that they were multiplying as a congregation and so on. But, but as all, but also we find out here that that uh, as they're growing, there is greater diversity. And uh, when you have diversity, it is inevitable that there's going to be some conflicts and so on. They can be. Uh, it, it's just how do you deal with the conflicts and so on, and so that so that's what you have here with all this diversity. There's some there's some uh, uh, what I would say uh, uh, logistical issues. There, there might be some challenges, but what we exactly. notice in verse one of this chapter is uh, that the disciples, the number of the disciples, was multiplying. And then we see uh, at the end of this, uh, when things are resolved, that the word of God spread and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and that even some of the religious leaders were being taught. We'll get to that in a moment. And so um, it is important that a church uh, see the importance of growing, uh, of multiplying, of increasing in number, of teaching the gospel to anyone who will listen and we see that this church was successful in that. They were still uh, growing. They were still multiplying. And uh, what is the, uh, Shelton, I was wanting to ask you, we're going to talk about a complaint. And when we talk about a complaint, uh, I know some other translations use a little different word there. Uh, but as we consider that, uh, what is the complaint that did arise? Well, um, <clears throat> starting in verse 1, it lets us know, what that is, that a complaint arose first against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. And that kind of goes in to what we were talking about with, or what Brian was saying before our uh, our pre-study discussions that was, uh, I believe, still live. But you have a little bit of the racial thing there. The Hellenists upset with the Hebrews. They're complaining. And the reason was because they felt that their widows uh, were being neglected. The daily contribution that was being taken up uh, and things like that, those uh, those Hellenists felt as though their their widows were were not being considered uh, as greatly as they should have been in uh, in those in the dispersion of that contribution. So there were some widows who were in need. Uh, they were Hellenists would indicate that they were uh, of a Greek background. They were part of the church there. They were Christians, and the Greeks were concerned that their widows. Uh, were being neglected uh, in providing for them. Isn't it interesting, just as, as a side note here, isn't it interesting that the need of those widows was a daily need, and that uh, here they, they had a daily need, and the church rose to meet that need. 
that was among uh, the the Christians there. I thought that was a, a really important thing is that the church took care of what it needed to take care of in the work that was uh, taking place there. But it does seem to be based upon the fact that it was their widows. It was the, the uh, Grecian or the Hellenistic uh, widows, those of that uh, racial ethnic background, I guess. Uh, racial might not be the right word. Ethnic would probably be better. Uh, that, that background. And so uh, really, uh, really an important, important problem here. So things are going great. And all of a sudden, here is a problem. I imagine some of the brothers here have experienced some of those kinds of things that things are going great with the work. And all of a sudden, here's uh, some problem that arises, some controversy, some complaint, some difficulty. And how that is handled is going to be key to the future uh, of seeing how things go from there. Um, John, I was going to ask you about the danger of complaining. Uh, Do you see a danger here uh, to the church that, that a potential for uh, some real problems there. And when someone has a complaint, uh, how can they handle that in a godly manner? Paul, that's a very interesting, um, interesting question to consider. There are certain times complaining can be beneficial in that it brings to light uh, maybe issues or challenges that are not being dealt with, as in this case in point right here. However, when complaining comes in because people are dissatisfied or maybe they they feel like that there is some sort of unfairness going on, then you have to watch out for the motive behind the complaining. Um, some people like to complain. Some people like controversy. But then there are some people who honestly and legitimately says, hey, we have a problem. We have an issue that would probably be good for us to deal with. In this case of point, I think what we're looking at here is something that's very legitimate. Um, although it, it is connected with their not being, um, uh, they're being neglected in the daily distribution. Um, so it was a legitimate issue. If the apostles had not dealt with it properly, it could have blown up into something maybe even, even worse. We've seen that happen before. I think that, that what you say is good. It, you know, it is good not to ignore something, uh, as you discussed, uh, not to just uh, let it uh, fester is, is yeah. a term that we might use, uh, but to address it. But we don't need to be the kind of people who also are just complainers for the sake of complaining. You know, when, when this was resolved, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but when this is resolved, it's resolved, it seems. We don't read about in chapter 7, 8, and 9 about uh, – problems with Greek widows, you know, anymore. And it wasn't like, well, uh, nothing they could do would be uh, helpful. Uh, And so uh, nothing they could do could fix this. You know, they have just ruined it. Uh, But instead, you know, they're open to a solution that is implemented by the apostles. Now, Brian, I I just saw that you have a a comment about uh, the relief of widows, I believe. Uh, that's right. I thought it might just be worth mentioning here, Paul, that that widow relief is a very important work of the of the church of the New Testament church. In First Timothy chapter five, there's a lengthy discussion there about the work of relieving widows. We might want to just make the point to say that widows are uniquely uh, supported by the church in a way that no other demographic in the church is. That, in other words, widows alone are entitled to a weekly stipend of benevolence. 
Uh, not to say that others can't receive any benevolence, but that constant stipend of benevolence, kind of like a, I, I hesitate to use the word, but like a pension or some kind of uh, of constant support. Widows alone are uniquely uh, permitted to receive that. And that's kind of an important thing because there's been some controversy in the Lord's Church in times past about, about supporting people uh, short-term, long-term. And it's just a good point for us to draw it here to say that from the very beginning, widows always have been uh, unique in that reception of benevolence. Good, good point. And I, I think that what we see here is that sometimes we see benevolence need to be given to just anyone. And, and sometimes there's an ongoing need that is taken care of. And, and this is one of those ongoing needs of widows. And the whole idea of a widow indeed that, that is spoken of there in, in uh, 1 Timothy 5 is exactly right. Uh, John, go ahead. Well, Paul, one thing that and we, we don't have time to talk about, and this chapter doesn't really tell us, but I think it would be good at some point to ask ourselves, why were these widows in, in need? Um, what was the circumstance that, because it wasn't just the widows that were in need. You stop and think about when you go back to you know, chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5, there's examples of many individuals being provided for in regards to some sort of, of need needing to be met. And I think it's important to understand at least what we think has created the situation. And what's going to happen is shortly there's going to be an event that takes place that sends a lot of these Christians running back to their homes where, we're, where, they're, where they're going to be scattered. Um, and so um, I guess what I'm saying is that sometimes people will look at this as an authority, as a general overall, the church needs to take care of the the financial problems of everybody. But this was very unique, very special. And once they are scattered going back to their homes, it will go away. And then it will boil down to the local congregations like First Timothy 5 and their responsibilities and so forth. But Yeah. And Mike, Mike Davis, who uh, is not feeling well today, but, but he's uh, joining us. You know, he made a comment uh, recently that there were specific qualifications for those to be, um, receiving this type of benevolence, this the, some of the translations use the word uh, in First Timothy five enrolling, but we're kind of uh, venturing outside of the context yep. of Acts six, and so um, we we see that as being a being a topic maybe for for another time. But there is a solution here that's implemented, and when we see that solution, uh, I'll, I'll just uh, take a look at that. Uh, in uh, Acts 6 there, we see that, uh, Seek out from among yourselves seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. So there's some things about this that are interesting, that the the congregation of believers were to be involved in the selection of the men who would care for this. They were men that they could all trust. They were men that they could feel confident would take care of this uh, very well. And when we see there that they are uh, good men, they're full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and, and that they're willing to be appointed over this business and handle that. Now, Brian, you noticed something about the men who are selected. Uh, Philip, Stephen, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, uh, all those seven men. Uh, I left off Nicholas, I believe. Uh, what did you notice about those, Brian? Well, it's interesting to look at their names. Uh, those are all Greek names, which would identify them 
most likely, as being Hellenists themselves. Hellenists in the sense that they were Jews who had been raised among Greeks and had adopted Greek culture. So it seems what's interesting is that part of this solution is that they're going to draw out men who themselves were Hellenists, who were Greek Jews, uh, to be the solution. So all of the men selected are, in fact, Greek Jews. And it's kind of an interesting observation because it indicates that the solution of the people to make sure there was no complaint was, and that there was no, uh, really, the, the distinction was irrelevant in regards to the church, is that it would all be those men who would handle it. Uh, so, so this was agreeable uh, when we read about that a little later on, that it was agreeable to the congregation. And, and they did this, and uh, they, they were set over this work. That was the solution. It was implemented. Uh, it was uh, very successful, as we see. Now, Brian, I, I want to uh, give you a, a another, <laughs> another punch, a, a, another shot here. And the question that I have is, in, some people read this, and they see that these men were servants. They were appointed to a specific work to do. Uh, and when we see that they were appointed that specific work to do, we see that there were men uh, later in, in the church who were appointed to do certain works, and those men are called deacons. Uh, and we see that in the church at Philippi that the church is identified with his elders and deacons and saints or members. And so we also see in First Timothy 3 that deacons were to be appointed and they met certain qualifications. And so my question for you is, are these men's deacons uh, of the church, or would you say no? That's a great question, Paul. The short answer is no, or not exactly. Um, the long answer is, these men only have four or five qualifications, and these aren't the same qualifications that we find for deacons in First Timothy chapter 3. So we don't see them as the precise same office. However, uh, it wouldn't be unfair to suggest that they do for the church in Jerusalem what deacons do for most congregations. So many times we there, there tends to be an absence of directive as to what work the deacons do in a church. And in that absence, this example sets up for us kind of an idea of what a deacon might be doing within the church and the kind of work they might do. So no, they're not deacons, but they do help us to understand better the idea of the deacons in the, in the pattern of the New Testament church that we follow today. There are certainly lessons. To, I, I agree with you, by the way. Uh, not that that <laughs> helps you along at all, but I do agree with you. And I think in looking at this, we, we see the importance of of that, uh, the importance of, of how things are, are done in a way that is honorable and that there is a, a good selection made at the guidance of the apostles. And so um, interesting, interesting point. Um, I wanted to... I guess uh, going back down, uh, I'll give this to Tom. Uh, and Tom, we see that the apostles were not going to be uh, involved in serving tables. They were not above that work, but they had other things that were needed to be done. What is the important work that the apostles uh, were to be engaged in? Yeah, it, it says in verse number four there, it says, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. I mean, I mean, when you go back and you look at the what the work of the apostles was, you know, we, we sometimes describe them as ambassadors. And uh, and, you know, while they did the work of a minister, as in uh, they did the work of an evangelist and so on. 
they had a little more uh, uh, they, they had a little more of a, a specific responsibility or a greater responsibility because of their direct association with Christ. Uh, their job it it wasn't about relieving world hunger. You know, it, it 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 wasn't about solving the problems of society and so on. It was a spiritual work. It was a spirit. Uh, Did we lose Tom? Oh, he's back. Keep talking, Tom. I'm not, I'm not Did I come back you. or? Yeah, you're back. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I yeah. I'm here, Tom. Yeah, I, I was going to say it's, it was a spiritual responsibility. John, uh, I'm going to interrupt here for just a second. Uh, John. If you would take over, I will leave the uh, chat and come back in. There seems to be some kind of a hang-up here. And, John, if you'll just take over until I can get logged back in. Okay. We'll do. Tom, go ahead and continue there with what you were saying, and then we'll move on. Yeah, and and, and again, you know, I, I was just making the point that the, the apostles had a spiritual work. Yeah. They had a spiritual responsibility that was going to result in the gospel being made available to the world for well, we're going on some two thousand years now, so so uh, uh, that was that was the work. It wasn't about relieving the hungry of the society and so on, and and and, and that doesn't mean those things aren't important. Yeah, it's just but, that's not what their work was. But th- think about their work for just a moment. I, and I don't think we maybe we talk. I don't think oftentimes we consider the magnitude of what's going on currently. They have thousands of new converts. Mm-hmm. that they, the 12, are responsible to try to teach. And it could be that, that as people learn, they become teachers. We just don't have a record of that initially. So imagine their responsibility in trying to daily teach 5,000, 6,000 people, and at the same time tending to the daily distribution. You're right that their, their spiritual responsibilities were far more important. Um, can, can you imagine if you had a congregation with apostles aren't elders, Elders aren't apostles, <laughs> but imagine if you had a congregation of 6,000 members and you only had 12 elders to oversee the congregation and to teach the congregation, you know, um, anyway, something to think about. And it's not just give yeah. ourselves over to prayer and fasting. The responsibilities they had were tremendous and were very spiritual. All right, let's see. Right. Um, Okay. So Brian's already tackled whether or not these men were deacons, and that's kind of what we're talking about there. What? Okay. And and I think Tom has addressed the last one. What important or valuable work were the apostles doing? And so we've kind of discussed that. So let's go ahead and take a moment and then jump back to the chat room question here. And so I think we have one reply to that. But here is the question for this section generated for the chat room. What kind of diversity do we see among the disciples? Are there lessons to learn from that? And so, yes, we have a reply, and this or the answer to the question comes from Gregor Hinckley. He says, complete spectrum of cultural, genetic, education, and economic diversity. Even with cultural taboo, they managed to live together. That's a very, very good point. One of the things that I've not understood through, through history is especially when you look at what the New Testament teaches regarding our relationship as Christians, how Christians could be divided based on cultural or ethnic uh, divisions. 
I've never understood that. Um, and, and when we stop and think about all Christians are supposed to be one with God in fellowship with God and with Christ and therefore in fellowship with one another, to me, it is inexcusable at any point in history for Christians to say to other Christians, you're not as good as us. You're not like us. We want to be separate from you. It just, to me, that is, that was wrong and inexcusable. Isn't that right, Brian? Yeah, that's, that's great, Lisa. Tom, uh, John, uh, uh, that's really very well said. It's very relevant. It's something we have to consider all the time. Uh, how many books in the New Testament are written because of problems like that? Look at the book of Romans, yeah. the distinction of the Jew and the Gentile. Look at Galatians, the, some of the teachings of the Judaizing teachers. Uh, there's a lot of times in the New Testament, a great deal of the New Testament is spent trying to break down the idea that we are of our separate nations. Now, what's so interesting about your statement, John, is that from a Jewish perspective, they have for 1,500 years been taught to keep that racial distinction, that that yeah. racial distinction is the foundation of their covenant, and that there's even been times such as Ezra and Nehemiah when that racial distinction was blurred, that they, they had to put away wives and children in order to keep it. Right. So from their perspective, now they're being told just the opposite, that that, that distinction that, you know, if you let me say it like this, John, that began at the Tower of Babel, which was the confusion of languages, ended on the day of Pentecost, which was the merging of language, so to speak, the coming together of culture. And it takes spiritual maturity to understand that we are now citizens of the kingdom, not citizens of the nations to which we belong. or or And, and oftentimes, along with nations, are racial distinctions or other types of distinctions, and that those things are washed away. I've often said that the most radical statement of the Bible uh, that that is radical from a cultural perspective is the Apostle Paul saying in Galatians chapter 3 that we are neither Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free, that we're all one in Jesus Christ. That statement is completely contrary to the thinking of the entire world, even to this day. So it's a significant statement you made there, John. Well, I, I wish I had said that about the Tower of Babel. That's a very good point. The division introduced John then and brought together by Christ. Um, let's see. We have a guest who's now returning with us I think the only today. person I can hear is Brian. Uh, uh, Paul, Paul, are you saying I'm the only one? Who, I'm interrupting a second. Paul, you can't hear still? Tom, is that right? can you talk for a second? Yeah. Uh, I actually have a thought. To <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try something different here. I'll be back. I'm okay. sorry. Right. Go ahead, okay, Tom. So, right. we, we've driven Paul off again. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, Brian, if, if I could uh, inject a real quick thought on what you said. Uh, one of the things to understand about the, the Jewish culture and so on is God's emphasis to the Jews was that they were to be separate. It had nothing to do with viewing Gentiles as inferior. But they had turned them into an inferior race. And that is the culture that the whole New Testament is constantly trying to address is that you don't, they're not second class where God is concerned. Uh, and, and, and I think that that's the issue that we have to deal with. You know, when we think about racial diversity, cultural, all those types of things, uh, we need to understand in dealing with people that they're, the way that they're raised becomes a part of who they are. You know, it becomes a part of their mindset. Uh, you might use the term their worldview and so on. And uh, and those things uh, have to be dealt with if you're studying with somebody. And and kind of understand that when you deal with, with uh, cultures, 
and, and, and I'm not talking about right versus wrong here, you know, uh, uh, per, per se. Uh, it, it, even though the point is, as you know, we, we've got to just get past the point that because somebody's different, that means that they're less than us because they're not. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a very good point. I think All I'm right. hearing everyone now. I, I changed browsers and and we'll give oh. this a give this a shot. I, I thought you I guys hear me you. all right. I thought I could keep you out longer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we can hear you. <laughs> you know, there's a point yeah, that you'd I think I, it was your birthday or something, but there's a point that I was wanting to think about. This is that you know the work that the apostles were doing. Someone might have said, oh, "Well, they're just praying and teaching," and I I, I don't know, but. In particular, the work of praying for the disciples, prayer was considered something that was worthy uh, of the work of the apostles for them uh, to give their time to. And, and I thought that was good. And in the diversity of the church, you guys have made some great comments that I was able to hear and, and really appreciate that, and especially appreciate uh, Gregor and his input into that. Um, we probably should go ahead and move forward uh assuming that things technically hold up uh go ahead and move forward and take a look at uh verses seven and eight tom i have you down for reading those okay verses seven and eight uh, just simply say uh the word of god spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith and stephen full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Uh, this is kind of an interesting division where I chose. Some would have said that the previous section went through verse 7, and, and the new section began at verse 8. I, I like how verse 9 begins with the word then. Uh, it makes it kind of a nice division, so we, we can uh, hopefully work with that. The question for the chat room is, who is Stephen? And so we'll be uh, taking a look at that. Uh, at, after a couple of questions just on this. Uh, and, and let's uh, hit Shelton here. Shelton, did the widow problem slow the success that the disciples are experiencing? We see that here we have a controversy. We have people who are upset. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure to what greater or, or smaller level that was. It was enough to get the apostles' attention that this was something that needed to be handled. And so uh, they have been very successful. They're growing. Everything's going fantastically. Uh, and so tell me, uh, Shelton, uh, did this, how did this impact the growth that they were experiencing? Well, you know, there's one interesting thought. I mean, there's obviously no way for us to know what it would have been without that problem. Uh, if it would have been even greater, we're not told. However, it's not that it impacted it in a way that it was not great. Uh, that they had less success as far as not very much success or or people not coming to it. As in verse 7, the word of God spread, the numbers uh, of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Not just that it multiplied, not just that they were growing, but still we see in Acts 2, we see in Acts 3, uh, and, and pretty much all of the beginning of this book of Acts, the church multiplying greatly, especially in Jerusalem. Uh, a great many of priests even were obedient to the faith, which is very important because when you look at people like the priests and, and the fact that they have been in the law so so long, a lot of them held on to that and, and didn't accept the teachings of Christ and, and things like that. We even see priests 
going uh, on the same side as the Sadducees, not wanting to accept the resurrection of Christ a little later in, in this book. So it's important to see that, that though there were problems in the church, and, and this is very applicable to us today, though there might be problems in the church, it does not necessarily have to slow the spread of the gospel. The gospel message is said to have its own power, that when we spread it, it's not us converting people, but it is the word, and, and it is the gospel message. And so it has the same power no matter what um, personal problems we might be having or uh, ethnic disputes like we see in chapter 6 here. The Word of God has the power to spread even through those problems. So if, if we're going through problems in our local works or something like that, we need not to let it affect uh, the way that we spread the gospel. That we can get through those things and, and we can solve these problems without having to uh, slow ourselves down as far as uh, thinking that, you know, my, my teaching is not going to have the same effect as it used to because there's this problem. Very good. Uh, you know, Mike Davis sent me a very similar note that uh, problems were solved with love and they create growth for the church. Here is something that I, I would uh, challenge you to observe and consider uh, that a church that is fighting within rarely is able to reach out. Uh, a church that, that has infighting will not be very successful in their evangelistic efforts. They probably will not be able to focus on evangelistic efforts because they are so uh, working on that internal problem. It's just like in our physical body where there's a cancer. Uh, all the resources of the body uh, go to address that and sometimes shut down other key things that need to be addressed. Uh, you know, the kidneys will shut down. If I can interrupt for a second to, to kind of strengthen that a little bit. Um, uh, you're exactly right, though. The, like I said, the power of the gospel is not limited to, you know, not be able to do its job if there's problems. But it's very important to see that the, the disciples, the apostles, they fixed this problem in order for that evangelism uh, and and the spreading of the gospel not to be hindered. They, they got on it and they, they fixed it quick. Like you mentioned earlier, we don't hear about it again uh, in later in the book of Acts. The problem has been solved. And that meant that. Uh, it was addressed by those who may have been neglecting, and uh, it was the solution was accepted by those who were complaining. Exactly. And, and so that that's such a a, a powerful uh, message for us as we uh, look at that. And so uh, you answered the second question that I was going to throw out to someone else, but you did a great job with it. What, oh. is <laughs> what significance is there that priests were believing and obeying? Uh, that they were those people who were so ingrained in the law. They were uh, people who were uh, there. I suppose we could look at their livelihood. Everything about them was involved in, in that Old Testament uh, worship. But here we see that they are coming to believe in Christ. They're obeying the gospel. They're part of that multiplying that is taking place. And I really appreciate you doing that. Uh, Brian, why don't you... Uh, come back and take a look at the question that we have presented about who this Stephen is. Did anyone have any thoughts about that? Um, we didn't have any response on that one, probably because I, uh, my mistake was I failed to, to get that in uh, promptly. So I apologize for that. Um, so let me just kind of bring that up. Maybe the answer that ourselves, uh, Stephen here as one of the six, it's that he was a man full of faith in the Holy spirit. Uh, it says there in verse five, and that what we're going to find out is that his being full of the 
Holy Spirit, as the subsequent things are going to prove, uh, make him somebody effective in teaching the word and also in convicting the naysayer, the people who have much say against the gospel of Christ. I think that that is a, a good answer to that. Uh, Stephen's one of those. Uh, we're going to find out that Stephen, uh, as we read more about him, we're going to find more about his personality and his character and, and how strongly he believes those things. Uh, but I, I think that was a good answer for this point. Uh, John, I have you down to read Acts 6, 9 through 12. I called this uh, section uh, the irresistible Stephen. It's not that he was... Uh, physically attractive, but his words here, we're going to read about uh, how uh, those who even would oppose him uh, had difficulty resisting him. And so, John, if you would read Acts 6, 9 through 12. All righty, Paul. Acts 6, 9 through 12. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. Okay, uh, thank you, John. Now the question we have for the uh, chat room, and Brian, if you wouldn't mind dropping that in there. Oh, it looks like you already did. Uh, what is the synagogue of the freedmen? Uh, that's a, a question that may not be the easiest uh, of the questions we throw out there, but for our chat room, for those who are watching uh, online, uh, not part of the uh, on-camera discussion, uh, what is the synagogue of the freedmen? And so uh, we'll go to Brian. I'm going to uh, get you again right away. How did Stephen respond to those who were wanting to dispute with him? Um, well, um, and I, and I kind of wonder, I think maybe the answer to that is to say that he responded with wisdom and the spirit. And, um, I want to be clear to say that my, my understanding of what the spirit implies in this part is that he had spiritual understanding of the meaning of scriptures. And I think that that's more revealed in the next chapter, whenever he is accurately able to restate the things of the old Testament and how they connect to Christ. Uh, certainly, uh, we mentioned this chapter division kind of keeps us anxious for chapter seven. Uh, but as, as you look at this, I think you're exactly right there that uh, he spoke with wisdom and the spirit and it was irresistible of, I think the word there uh, that, that's used for resist probably had to do with the fact that they would have liked to have opposed him more, but he was so convincing. It was impossible uh, for them to argue with him, uh, to dispute with him. And so, uh, I think that's uh, a valuable, a valuable approach to that. Now, Tom, uh, excuse me, John. Uh, you read this section, and do you think, in reading this, is your evaluation uh, that the disputers, the, the, these people who were opposing Stephen, were they interested in learning, believing, and obeying the truth? Well, quite clearly, I don't think they were. I agree with what um, you're saying there. They were not interested in really wanting to know what the truth was. They were more, um, they saw an opportunity to be able to stir the people up against Stephen. And here's here's something that's, that's interesting. If we go back to, I think it's chapter 5, 
um, when the apostles were brought up on charges and, and thrown into jail because they had been preaching the word of God and a lot of people were following them. And, and as, as the Sadducees and the leadership said, you know, they were bringing the blood of Jesus upon the leaders there. The leaders listened to Gamal and they, after beating the apostles, they let the apostles go fearing the people that they might be stoned. So it's interesting that the people were such volatile in their response that even the leaders feared them. And so here in chapter six, they turned this to their own favor and turned the people against Stephen. And yeah, you're right. They weren't after the truth. Uh, that's right. And so they can't resist it. They can't oppose it. They're trying to, but that Stephen's uh, words are, are just too powerful. Yeah. And so what do they do? They stir up trouble. Uh, and, and that's oftentimes a tactic of false teachers. Uh, if they cannot overcome uh, truth teaching with their error, uh, they will uh, begin with attacks uh, and, and stirring up trouble. And so, uh, John, do you have another thought about that? No, no, you're good. Okay. Well, I wanted to kick over to Brian here. Brian, you connected this, and I think Mike Davis did too, uh, with some of the spiritual gifts that were given and some wording that Jesus used in uh, sending uh, men out to preach. Well, you know, Mike Mike had kind of brought it up asking about it, and it was I was thinking about Luke 21, 15. Uh, Jesus makes the statement there talking about sending out his disciples, and he said, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all of your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. And I think it's interesting, of course, Luke is, Luke is the author of both of these, um, as a the human author, I should say, uh, and we're seeing kind of the same terminology used there that he's going to res- he's going to be equipped with wisdom, and that the adversaries won't be able to resist. Which which seems to be a direct fulfillment of that here when he's equipped with wisdom and the Spirit uh, sent by Jesus that he's equipped with these things and that his adversaries aren't able to resist. It seems to be a direct fulfillment of those things. Good thoughts. Hey Tom, uh, it says that they stirred up this trouble, uh, they got everyone uh, roused up, and then uh, it, it, ultimately they brought Stephen before the council. Uh, that's in verse 12. Brought him to the council. What council? Right. Well, the idea of the council is uh, uh, it, it's what we would describe as the Sanhedrin, and, and at least that's what I believe it is. And the Sanhedrin was a group of, uh, I believe it was 70 70 uh, leaders in Jerusalem that were basically responsible for enforcing the law. We, we would make it, it would be equivalent to, in some ways, equivalent to what we would call our Supreme Court, you know, you know from that standpoint. But, but they, uh, uh, they basically wanted to, to ensure that the law was respected and that it was maintained, especially in Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was the quote-unquote headquarters, in their minds, of, of Judaism and so on. And so you have this council of influential individuals that uh, make major decisions that are supposed to affect the Jews, not only locally, but potentially throughout the world. Appreciate that, Tom. A uh, really good description uh, uh, of the council here. And so it's Jewish leaders. It's the Jewish court that he's being brought in front of. And uh, certainly we understand uh, from our study back in Luke uh, how uh, powerful they were and what uh, they set out to do to Jesus. 
as well. Uh, Brian, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be distracted. Uh, you have a question that you'd like to bring up, and maybe well, you can provide a partial answer. Well, actually, I don't have an answer. I did have a question. Um, some of the way the text sometimes read is that uh, uh, some translations almost indicate maybe it's more than one synagogue that's involved here. Uh, and I'm thinking it might be the the King James Version, which speaks about the synagogue as though it's distinct uh, by calling it the synagogue of the Libertines and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians. Um, and I and I seem to recall that somebody, and it was either another translation or maybe a commentator suggested that these are multiple synagogues uh, based, you know, based on synagogues of, you know, distinction. The only thing I would say is if that's true, that would be kind of an interesting contrast to the church, which draws in all the different Jews, and then the Judaism, which then fragments them into different synagogues. That would be kind of an interesting thing if that were the case. But I think most translations now render this idea as there was one synagogue of freedmen that included different people. But I was asking the question, does anybody have any uh, knowledge of that as, as distinct synagogues? I do not. Um, be a good question no. for us to, to provide a little research to. Uh, but I, I think we're going to have to let that one go, Brian. But I'm going to uh, gonna look at what our chat has to say. And in looking at what our chat has to say, maybe come back to that question at a future discussion. In uh, looking at that, the chat question for this time was, what is the synagogue of the freedmen? Now, uh, I see there that Gregor Hinckley, uh, he has a statement there, that the a synagogue of non-Hebrew proselytes, possibly made primarily of freed slaves or of other Gentile converts. Uh, the, the words there, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia, they, they were non-Palestinians, uh, seem to be an indication there, and that would be in harmony with what Gregor says. Does anyone else have any thoughts about this? Well, it's one of those things that we're not told much about, and so we can't say much about. Go ahead, John. We do have two comments uh, by Drew Forrest. I'm going to bring his second one in first because it relates to the question, but then he has one additional comment. Drew says, I'm not sure about the synagogue, but my best guess would either be free from Roman rule or freed slaves. Working off that terminology there. Um, but going back to the Regarding Stephen, he says, That kind of irresistible speaking was the same that Jesus showed, thus making the only choice was to kill him rather than try and resist him. Oh, uh, I appreciate that comment so much that Drew, Drew Forrest makes, and, and it's really insightful into the fact of how false teachers operate. People who don't care about truth in, in this case, but they just want to be right and want to have their way, is that in looking at that, that they are, if they can't overcome uh, the teaching, they will do whatever it takes. Uh, I would say character assassination, yeah. but in both the case of Jesus and Stephen, it becomes actual assassination. Tom? Yeah, yeah. It, it Well, it does become actual, but it starts out. It starts out with character. I mean, I mean, uh, uh, logically, or from a logic standpoint, you know, I'm, uh, this would be described as an ad hominem attack. And, and what that means is you, if you can't answer the, you can't answer the argument, uh, uh, attack the character of the one making it as if that's going to invalidate the argument. 
and and it, it doesn't. But it is a characteristic that people who are less than ethical will use. I understand that. Uh, let's. Uh, I, I just looked at the clock, and I thought we might finish early today, but we are pressing on time. So let's go ahead and get Shelton to read verses 13 through 15. I have called this section Liar's Lie, and, and maybe we'll see why as we look here. Uh, Shelton, Acts 6, 13 through 15. Absolutely. Starting verse 13, says, They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. And so as we look at this, uh, the question I have for the chat simply is, what is a false witness? I think that's pretty straightforward. But I'd like to hear what uh, some of those who are watching online today would would say about that what is a false witness uh i said liars lie maybe it's uh has some slight difference uh between uh in, in looking at that um just exactly a liar and so i've passed around some questions it seems like i haven't talked to uh shelton in a while shelton uh, what was the accusation that they do make against Stephen here? He's going to address that primarily in chapter 7, but the accusation comes here. It's interesting that when they when they accuse him of the blasphemous words, uh, at least the false witnesses uh, that come out and say that he cannot cease uh, to, to say these blasphemous words, uh, they say that it's against this holy place and the law. And before in verse 11, it says we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So they feel like he's not only speaking blasphemous words, but very specifically going against Moses and God, uh, against the holy place and the law. The false witnesses, of course, uh, that you mentioned in the chat room, not to step on what they are or what they do. But they say that they've heard him say that Jesus will destroy this place and change the customs Moses delivered to us. So that's the accusation that they are putting on Stephen is that he's going against God. He's going against the customs that Moses gave to them. Um, we see in, in the wilderness and in the places of the giving of that law, uh, they believe that he's speaking blasphemy against those things because he's now preaching Jesus and, and the new covenant. Uh, certainly he's going to explain that, uh, how all those things, and I'm jumping to chapter 7 again, but how all those things led up. Uh, to Christ, how they are in harmony, uh, <laughs> harmony yeah, with one another. Cliffhanger, the cliffhanger chapter 6 leaves us on, but uh, you're right, chapter 7 does go into explaining uh, all of that much better. Brian, I'd like to ask you uh, my question here. Uh, how does Stephen respond to this more aggressive opposition? Before he spoke with wisdom and with the Spirit, maybe those were spiritual gifts. And as we see that, that he, he taught them and everything. But how does he respond uh, without jumping entirely into chapter 7? How does he respond here to this more aggressive uh, opposition? Well, actually, I think it's really interesting what's about to happen. I think uh, from a legal standpoint, it's very intelligent, obviously spiritually led discernment by Stephen. Because Stephen is basically being told that 
that he doesn't respect the things of, of the law of Moses. Now, you might, by the way, consider that this is the accusation that is made against Jesus for which he is put to death. So there's no question Stephen understands this is a very serious moment that uh, that uh, Christ has within his lifetime been executed for this for this accusation. So it's serious. But the genius of his response is going to be a summary and quoting of the things of the Old Testament. And that demonstrates in a courtroom that not only does he not disrespect these things, but he has a knowledge of these things that is uh, equivalent to that of the scribes. Uh, by quoting statements made by these men, and then by accurately handling those quotes and bringing them into a, a mind and a consensus of the of the case that he's making, he's he's really proving uh, what we in a courtroom it's called prima facie on the face of it. He's proving prima facie that that he utterly does not blaspheme the law of Moses, that he accurately handles the law of Moses. And in doing this, he's actually going to demonstrate that those that are against Christ are the ones that are truly blaspheming the law of Moses. So his defense in chapter eight is, is just, or chapter seven, is just fantastic from a legal standpoint by going through and restating the story of the history of Israel with citation, with quotation, he proves uh, from that he's going to have an accurate handle and understanding of these things. Really, really good response. He, they saw him as the face of an angel. That they're staring at him. He is not cowering. Uh, he is not backing down. He is ramping up uh, for chapter seven. And so, what is a false prophet? Uh, do we have an answer for that, from that in our uh, chat room? No, not a false prophet. A false witness. Uh, it's the idea of a perjurer. Uh, someone who not only would lie about someone, but would go on the record uh, with their lie. And so we, we see that happening. It'd probably be a good time to proceed to some truth factoring points that we can bring forth out of this chapter. And so uh, as we consider some of those things, what can we take home uh, from the lesson today? Uh, well, first of all, the church needs to have both the knowledge and the attitude to help us to be faithful and united. Christians can resolve problems. And so when we see problems in the church, we need to have uh, the right attitude, the right knowledge of God's word, uh, the, the helpfulness and the receptiveness to be able to address those. Uh, I also see that here there were two important works that needed to be done, two important works of the church. The relieving of some Christians, uh, the benevolence of some Christians, and uh, the work of the word and prayer. And as we look at that, we see how it is keenly important, as we consider that, that both those things get done. And they did not have to stop one to do the other. Uh, they were able to do uh, both of those. And so and I want to make one point about Stephen there uh, as we think about that. Uh, is that um, tough opposition demands a tough stand for the truth, and the truth is worth the effort of standing uh, in opposition to those who would teach falsely. Truth is worth the effort uh, of uh, being willing to make a stand and to stand firm. I think those are some lessons that we can take away today. Uh, from this chapter, such a such a good chapter in the Word of God, and it whets our appetite for chapter seven. And at this point, I'm going to hand back over to John uh, for our final remarks. Okay. 
Thank you, Paul. I appreciate that. Um, Gregor did drop in an answer to your question just as we moved on past it. And I'm going to throw it up here because it's a good answer. A false witness supplies false evidence. And it's a very serious crime under Jewish law. I see in Deuteronomy 19, 16 through 20. So that's a good, good answer and a very good point of the level of their hypocrisy that they would stoop to. So... Paul, I appreciate you did a very good job with leading us through it. Um, hopefully, I'll be able to do just as good um, or at least get some level up there with next week when we have Chapter 7. But there's something I want to say real quick, and we'll, we're going to pull the study to a close. And, and I, I like to bring Paul to the forefront here. So, Paul, if you'll say something here for just a second. You want me to say something? Yeah, there you go. Just Just sit right there for a second. Everybody, I want you to know that today is Paul's birthday. And he is, he is topped 50, but he hasn't hit 60 yet. Um, it kind of blow upward and maybe you'll blow those candles out. So Paul, how old are you today? I am 52 years old today. 52 years. Well, happy birthday. It's not Tom's birthday. It's Paul's birthday. No, it's not Tom's. But, uh, but yeah, I appreciate that. That's, that's kind of you. Thank you so much. So I, sorry, I just had to, had to do that. When you put things in front of my face like there, I feel like, uh, Wilson off of, uh, that TV show. Uh, Yeah. Home improvement. Home improvement. (laughs) No, Tom, it's all right. We'll save the video for you, for, for your birthday too. Well, thank you so much for joining us for our study this week. Uh, as we mentioned, we will continue with Acts chapter seven. Um, if you're watching this at a later point in time, please don't hesitate to contact us and you'll see the, the means and method throughout the course of the video that you can uh, stay in touch with us and um, continue studying the word of God. Let's continue factoring the truth within our daily lives. And if all goes according to plan, we will continue our study next Wednesday at 11 o'clock a.m. Central Time. That's 12 noon in the Eastern Time Zone. 9 a.m. Pacific Time. 10 a.m. Mountain Time. And if you are watching from where these events took place in Jerusalem, you will be watching us at 6 p.m. It's right here at live.truthfactor.com. Have a wonderful week.